I'm Renee Colbert. And I'm Alexis Preston. And this is An Animal Saved My Life, a podcast about the incredible animals who change our lives forever. Well, hello, Alexis. Hello, Renee. Can I tell you my favorite part about talking to pet people? Yeah. Is it? Can I guess, though? Yeah, of course. Please. Uh, is it the little ways pets help us get through the day? It is. It absolutely is. Will you tell me what Crumb does again? Yes. So, my little scruffy poodle Crumb, anytime someone starts to cry, he runs over to them and starts licking their face. So now you can say, go check on Alexis, and he'll run to wherever I am and make sure nothing's wrong. The absolute sweetest. Now, on a less concerned note, my dog Tugboat, who is a 60-pound fluffy pit bull, wakes me up every morning by sitting on my head and wagging his tail in my face. (laughs) Wake up laughing every morning. (laughs) Well, so this week I spoke to a man. His name is Jesse Knott, and he lives in Olympia, Washington. And Jesse found himself in a situation most of us could never fathom. He really needed a friend like Tugboat or Crumb. And just a quick warning before we start, this episode takes us to a war zone and contains some content that might be disturbing or difficult for some listeners. Here's Jesse. Well, I was a software engineer originally, and then there was the proverbial dot-com crash. And one night I was watching 60 Minutes with my wife. The reporter was with 1st Marine Division going through Fallujah. And there was this ambush. I saw this one Marine go running down in the middle of the street, yelling something. And they actually announced after that scene that the Marine was trying to get to his friend that was on point and was killed instantly in the ambush. And it really struck me. I love my country. Watching that happen just set something off in me. I could have been there. I could be more than a spectator. That's when I decided that I was going to give up big tech and join the military. In 2006, Jesse joined the Army. Within a few years, he went from watching 60 Minutes on the couch to serving on a military base in Kandahar, Afghanistan. From there, he got into a Black Hawk helicopter and flew into a small village 40 miles west to a combat outpost, what soldiers call a cop. A cop is basically a tiny footprint, not even near the size of a football field, for probably 300 people. Of course, we get there in uh, early summer, 105 degrees on the average, just flat desert land for as far as the eye can see, and it's dry. The heat is like being in an oven. We basically just find a small area that is isolated enough that we feel safe. 
we throw up some walls, these HESCO barriers that they fill with sand and a couple of tents and call it home. That's what separates us from the rest of Afghanistan. Jesse's cop was in a tiny village called Hutal, right off Afghanistan's biggest highway. The observation point for the cop was built on a giant mound left over from the conquests of Alexander the Great. The landscape was alien to Jesse. This little combat outpost in the middle of the desert, surrounded by mountains and locals he didn't know. Being so close to the civilians was kind of nerve-wracking. You could have an ambush come from local buildings that were right next to us. You become very kind of just suspicious and very detached, and you're trying to rely on this band of brothers that are just trying to make it through. When we first got there, of course, there's a bunch of stray animals on the on the camp. There's a bunch of dogs, some cats, and I was talking to my supply sergeant in his tent, and I saw this little kitten that I just immediately fell in love with. I was like, oh my God, it's so cute. And we got into an argument about who got to keep the kitten. And I decided it's always good to be on good terms with the supply sergeant. So I went ahead and left the kitten with him. He was just this kind of a dark tabby, black and gray and tan. He was very well camouflaged. (laughs) And um, of course, he would hang out at the mess tent. So I would see the cat all the time. and I'd give him treats and try to pet him and He was kind of suspicious of everything. We all were. (laughs) But at the same time, he had no fear. He would go wherever he wanted, and it was his camp. As Jesse settled into his duties on the cop, he still kept tabs on the little kitten. He liked having animals around camp, and he wanted to make sure they were safe, too. I would see him at the mess tent. I'd always give him little scraps of food and see him rummaging around in the garbage cans. But as time went along, I started seeing things were distressing. There was a time when I saw him and he had paint in his fur. And it didn't look like he just walked through some paint or brushed it. It actually looked like somebody had put paint on him. Shortly after that, somebody had taken a pair of clippers and shaved almost like a reverse mohawk from between his ears down to his tail. And there were some, even some nicks in his skin, which that really torqued me out. At this point, Jesse was doing intelligence work on the base. It was his job to write reports for officers to read. So he started adding messages to his weekly and nightly briefings that said, look, we have these animals here and they share the camp with us and we need to make sure they're treated properly. It always was just kind of received with some skepticism of why is this NCO worried about cats and dogs and he's supposed to be doing intelligence work. And well, I was doing intelligence work, but I was also worried about the animals. Fast forward, I'm down at the aid station having a barbecue with our medics and I hear this little cat mewing. I can kind of identify the sound of his meow at that point. So I start to cut up some of the steak that I had. I was going to give him a little piece of it. And as he comes out from behind this 
concrete barrier, he has some blood in the gravel behind him. It's like he's trailing blood. And I I managed to scoop him up. And one of his toe pads is torn almost off. And I immediately freak out because after seeing the paint in his fur, the clipped fur, I just, I assume the worst. So I actually take him to my office, which locks, and I just start bandaging him up. I wrap his paw and I even go back to the aid station to see if I could get some uh, antibiotic ointment. I decide at that point, I'm going to keep him with me until it's healed. And of course, I needed to give him a name. I couldn't just keep calling him, hey, you. So I'm thinking, well, you know what? We're a military force occupying this space. It's Afghanistan. My grandmother was Russian. So I'm going to name him Koshka, which is kind of like a kitty in Russian. Jesse had a bunk in one of the main tents on the cop where he slept, but he decided to keep Koshka inside his office. He figured Koshka needed company, and it would be easier to take care of his injured paw that way. Plus, cats are fun bunkmates, right? I actually um, lived in my office at that point. I had a small cot, and I just started sleeping in there. One of the first things I discovered is, wait a minute, I have a cat in my office, and I can't let him out. Oh, no. So I run out and I find a lid from a box of paper and I fill it up with a bit of sand and gravel from the HLZ where the helicopters land. And I run back into my office and immediately he uses it. And I'm like, oh, my God, thank God. Because I was thinking that would be a problem. Jesse liked having Koshka in his office, but Koshka, not so much. After all, Koshka was a feral cat. So he's stuck in that tiny little office, which literally was about five feet by eight feet. It was almost so narrow you couldn't turn the cot the other direction. It was a tiny little shack. Every night he would howl and howl and (laughs) just go crazy. And then of course he still wasn't fixed. So as seasons went through, he would extra howl and be extra loud, which was really obnoxious when you're trying to sleep in there. So one of the things he decided is to start knocking things off of shelves. Like one night I woke up when he knocked a soup can off a shelf onto my head. That was fun. Another night, Jesse had some downtime and decided to do some housekeeping, army style. It was dusty in the cup, and the desert sand had a way of getting into everything. So every once in a while I'd like to disassemble my kit, clean out the pouches, and put it all back together. So I have all my rifle magazines laid out and I have my frag grenade sitting out on my desk. And Koshka does the cat. He walks up, looks at the grenade, smacks it with his paw. It falls onto the floor with this loud thunk. Instantly, my heart stops. And I go, one 1,000, two 1,000. Three, one thousand, four. Oh, thank God. And I pick it up <laughs> because it's got a three second fuse. So make it to four. You're good. That's the scariest episode of Tom and Jerry I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah. So. 
That would have been a uh, interesting incident report for the military to investigate. (laughs) (laughs) He just started to really grow on me. I mean, I really started to develop this affinity with this cat. Oh, I am absolutely breaking the rules at this point. It's I am so far into the realm of General Order One. Time for a crash course in Army protocols. General Order One is a set of rules that Army soldiers have to follow. It's basically a long list of things you can't do, aka prohibited activities. Like, in Section I, it prohibits, and I quote, adopting as pets or mascots, caring for or feeding any type of domestic or wild animal. Jesse was in clear violation. But ironically, um, my commander, he knew that I'd been worried about the cat that looked like it was being abused. So he shows up at my office with this giant stack of canned pink salmon. Gives it to me, telling me it's humanitarian aid to the POW. (laughs) With the commanding officer's unofficial blessing, Kashka was becoming the unofficial cop cat. Jesse's soldier friends even started coming by his office after patrols, just to see Kashka. They'd sit down and pet him just for a few minutes before returning to duty. It gave them some relief from the pressures of combat. And Jesse knew what it was like out there. He used to do infantry patrols. Three years earlier, Jesse was serving a tour in Iraq when he drove over a 200-pound IED. The blast left him so concussed, he spent three days in a Baghdad hospital not knowing who he was. Back in 2007, my brain got rattled like a martini. And ever since, I have memory issues and things like that. The shockwave also ruptured his abdominal wall and left him with two massive hernias. Then, a botched surgery left him with nerve entrapment syndrome, which is just as painful as it sounds. So, Jesse couldn't return to infantry duty, which is why he started doing the intelligence work in his office in Afghanistan. But I would try to go out on missions as much as I could because it was in my blood. It's what I wanted to do. And I'd made a point of telling my commander about how there are certain kinds of missions that pertain to intelligence work that I really should go on. Um, One of those missions came up. There was just this kind of bizarre, ambiguous tale. Somebody had said they'd found a body. And we want the Americans to go investigate I was in so much pain that day, especially, that I decided, you know what, I'm not going to go on this mission. I'm not going to push it. I'll get the after-action report and deal with it that way. When that patrol went out, it was just a small element on foot. They figured they could just get out and back really fast. As they were coming back, they decided to cut through one of the villages. And in that village... Uh, was a suicide bomber. And he walked into the middle of the patrol. And... I mean, it boils down to this patrol that I should have been on, that I didn't go. Two of my friends, who were my soldiers, also were killed. I could have been there. And, of course, I ended up blaming myself. I could have been there. I could be more than a spectator.
the night of that patrol, I decided that I was done. I was going to check out that night. I had my plan and basically I was going to have my last cigarette in my office and I was going to go down to the HLZ and take myself out. And as I'm sitting there finishing my cigarette, Koshka just goes crazy. I mean, he starts like head bonking me and he actually started purring. This is the first time I've ever heard this cat purr. And he starts rubbing up against me and licking me and even the playful bites. And it was just so bizarre. In that moment, it really struck me that I still had a purpose here. In war, one of the first things you have to do is you have to turn off your humanity. You have to stop caring. You see so much darkness and so much just suffering and pain that coming back and seeing this cute kitten playing is the icon, the beacon of your day. I had a new mission, uh, an additional mission. I've got to repay the favor. I decided I was going to try to get that cat out of the country. Kashka's rescue mission from Afghanistan begins after the break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The morning after Jesse lost his friends, and nearly his own life, he started to plot Kashka's rescue from Afghanistan. There were considerable obstacles. Jesse was leaving Afghanistan in just a few months, and he couldn't bring Kashka with him on the military transport out to Germany. Nor could he risk leaving Kashka behind on the cop. All because of General Order 1. For the most part, General Order 1 is somewhat overlooked. They're turned their back as long as they can. But all animals found on military bases have to be euthanized, destroyed. They don't want the spread of disease. Unfortunately, it also overlooks the companionship and the positives of animals. The military stance is you just wipe them all out. You see a rat, you get rid of the rat. You see a cat, you get rid of the cat. Leaving Kashka behind was never an option for Jesse. So he started begging his superiors to make an exception for General Order One and help him rescue the cat who'd saved his life. One commander told him he'd need an act of Congress before the military would help rescue Kashka. But Jesse didn't give up. Eventually, he found an animal rescue in Kabul that agreed to take Kashka and even put him on a plane back to Oregon. It was the only rescue taking cats in the entire country of Afghanistan. Jesse had to get Kashka to that rescue. One small problem. 
there were hundreds of miles of desert and enemy territory between Hutal and Kabul. Kabul was, I don't know, 300 miles. It was like a six, eight hour drive. So I started trying to find every possible way to sneak this cat across enemy lines out to Kabul, where he would then be taken care of. Jesse's cat rescue operation quickly became a cat smuggling operation. The first thing he tried was sneaking Kashka onto a helicopter headed to Kabul. So I am trying to find a way that I can get onto one of these helicopters now. And I actually have a carrier for the cat. But of course, I go running towards a helicopter that's getting ready to take off carrying a cat carrier. The crew chief takes one look at me and just like, seriously? No. Turn around. Go back. Then, Jesse tried bribing Kashka onto a convoy of supply trucks. One of the lieutenants on my camp is married to a lieutenant that's in charge of one of those convoys. Through the friendship bribe and kind of greasing the wheels with stuff from care packages, he actually sets it up, I will be a security detachment to them, aka whatever. But then that falls through because they get rerouted. So at this point, I'm losing hope. Jesse was running out of options. And of course, there was the looming danger of General Order 1. Then one day, word spread around camp that a visit from the brass was imminent. I think it was a full bird colonel was going to be coming out to our camp. He's a field grade officer, and here I am with this cat in my office that I'm not supposed to have, this cat that screams like a banshee every night. My office is right next to the transient tents where the colonel will be staying. Of course. So it's there's no hope. I owe my life to this cat at this point. I can't take that risk. That's where the Brits come in. <laughs> The Brits? Okay, let's back up a second. Within Jesse's cop, there was a detachment of British intelligence forces in a small building. No one really knew what they did, but they were there, and technically their building was sovereign British soil. Jesse got an idea. They had this chain-link fence around their uh, building, and from that point on was British soil. I walked up and I said, hey, um, I've got this problem. This colonel's coming out and he's going to make me get rid of or kill this cat. Could you kind of keep an eye on him for me? And the Brits were just like, oh, sure. Bring him on over. We're good. Yeah, I ran back to my office, grabbed the carrier, grabbed some food and ran back down. Koshka became an international refugee of uh, the United Kingdom. So (laughs) the uh, Brits didn't want to give him back to me because they'd even grown attached to him. The colonel never caught a glimpse of Koshka thanks to the Brits. But Jesse still didn't have a way to get Koshka to Kabul. And Jesse's deployment was nearing its end. He was leaving Afghanistan for good. In a week. I was panicking. I mean, I was at the point where... It's like combat stress, whatever. I I was stressing about my cat. I know that when we leave, I'm going to Kandahar. And uh, Kandahar is 
about a third of the way to Kabul. So it's not good enough. And um, that's when I came up with my final plan. Jesse's final plan for Kashka after the break. Jesse had a week to find someone to smuggle Kashka to Kabul before he left Afghanistan forever. If he could just get Kashka to that animal rescue, there would be a one-way ticket to Oregon waiting for him. Jesse got so desperate, he considered bribing the locals in Hutal to do the job. Then, he remembered the team of local translators he'd seen working around camp. We had our interpreters. Some of them were uh, Afghani citizens. So I actually uh, started going around and talking to every interpreter we had. One of our interpreters was going home for the holidays, and his home was in, you guessed it, Kabul. I immediately besieged him with like these pleas for, oh my God, could you please, please, please take my cab? His uh, first name was Nor. He said, well, I, I would be honored to take your cat with me. And it was just this profound moment. I, I couldn't stop thanking him. I mean, the first thing I did is I went back to my uh, office and I got every Afghani dinar I had to my name. And he actually at first didn't even want to take it. I mean, it was like, no, I'm doing this because I want to do this. That's one of the things that's very true in the Middle East in general is the sense of pride and honor. But the thing that was really scary about it is the laws the Taliban sets up. Uh, having pets is a decadence, and decadence is punishable by death. The thought of Noor traveling from our camp to Kabul carrying an American-made cat carrier with a cat, that was, that was an act of bravery in some sense. My flight was going to be next week by the time I finally found Noor to take the cat. Jesse was grateful for Nora's generosity, but he'd heard rumors about other Afghani interpreters who'd gone rogue with soldiers' pets. They'd take the money and then disappear, abandoning the animals in the desert off the side of the highway. He prepared for the worst. In my heart, I trusted that Nora would do the right thing, but I also knew the chances were not in Koshka's favor. The likelihood that he would make it was not high. I was leaving under the impression that I would never see Koshka again. Jesse spent his last night with Koshka in the office saying goodbye. Then he called his mother, Helene, and told her about his final plan for Koshka. In fact, Helene had been following Koshka from the very beginning. Over the past few months, Jesse had been calling his mom back in Oregon and telling her about the cat he'd been keeping in his office. 
even on the morning after Kashka saved Jesse's life, Jesse called his mom and told her what had happened. When I talked to my mom about Koshka, I felt that I need to show this cat that humans aren't as bad as what he sees. How do I reaffirm this faith that the humans around me aren't monsters, that they actually are caring creatures? And um, that really kind of settled on my mom, too, that... um, we needed to do everything we could to try to get Koshka back home. Nothing was going to stand in Helene Knott's way of helping her son and Koshka. So, when she found out they needed an act of Congress and $3,000 for a plane ticket, she wrote to her congressman about Koshka's plight and started selling quilts on consignment to raise the money. My mom is a really well-known quilter in her community of quilters in the Pacific Northwest. (laughs) And one of her students actually heard the story and just was so touched by it that her student basically bankrolled the operation. When Jesse finally left Afghanistan and flew to Germany, he couldn't talk to anyone because of a communications blackout. So he couldn't call Nor, he couldn't call mom, nobody. All he had was mom's reassurance and Nor's word. So yeah, that was pins and needles. I didn't know anything that was going on at that point. Now, Jesse's mom did try to keep tabs on things, but it was nearly impossible. She just waited for Kashka to show up in Kabul. A couple days passed and she called the rescue, but no sign of Kashka. A week passed. Still nothing. Two weeks passed, and Helene began to end each day in tears, wondering if Noor had been caught by the Taliban and Kashka abandoned in the desert. Meanwhile, Jesse was still under blackout orders in Germany, oblivious that Kashka had gone missing. And then, finally, word came from a different animal rescue in Kabul, the only other animal rescue in Kabul. They had just received a dark tabby cat from a man named Noor. It was Kashka. Noor had mixed up the rescue organizations, but he kept his word. And this rescue group gave Kashka his first checkup and then put him on a plane to Pakistan Right as Koshka lands in Pakistan, they do the assault on Osama bin Laden, and they lock down the country. So nothing comes in, nothing goes out. So now my mom is like, oh my God, is he sitting in the cargo hold of an airplane on a tarmac in Pakistan? And fortunately, no, he actually did get cared for they cared for any of the animals that were on the flights. And um, as soon as borders were opened again, uh, they sent him on to New York. And ironically, the uh, volunteer that picked him up in New York said that there were two cats coming from Pakistan. The first one was just frazzled and panicked and fried. And they uh, picked up the carrier with Koshka and Koshka just looked at him and was like, oh, it's you? You're, you're taking care of me now? 
<laughs> so they uh, actually were able to put him on the next flight the next day to Portland. What a good example of cats having nine lives. My cat is more traveled than most of my friends. I mean, my cat's got more visa stamps than most (laughs) people. (laughs) When Jesse finally left Germany, he was restationed in Fort Lewis, about three hours away from Koshka. So he buys a car, gets approved for leave, and heads down to visit his family. And I drive down. And Koshka is like just perfectly settled. He's like, this is my house. These are my humans. Shortly after I walk in, he's like, you, I, I think I know you don't. I, oh, it's you. And then he immediately like attaches to me and starts uh, head bonking and purring again, which he doesn't do terribly often. And, um, I just took a look at how everything was there and how much he had bonded with my parents. And my parents just love him unimaginably. So I decided that he needed to stay there with my parents. That that was his final forever home. Can can you imagine just getting to lounge on a chair as a cat in like beautiful Oregon? The first time Koshka got to see grass and walk in grass and feel what that felt like on his toes. It's kind of weird, but that's actually a sense of pride I have that I was able to give that to him. Koshka became my connection back to humanity. People see soldiers and they think these are all like tough meathead, carry a machine gun, shoot people. Animals can touch the hearts of the hardest soldier. If Koshka could understand every word you said, what would you say to Koshka? Oh, I would tell him thank you. I would thank him for giving me something to hold on to while I was there. In such a dark and such a horrible place. I mean, both in the night in question, but also just in war. You kept me going. You kept me alive. You kept some of my soldiers going. You gave us something that was much more important than the war. You kept us thinking about who we were, not what we were doing. Koshka still lives in Oregon with Jesse's parents. He loves lounging outside on the catio Jesse built for him. Jesse lives a few hours away with his German Shepherd Barrett and two Sphinx cats, Isotope and Radioactive. He still visits Koshka all the time. Today's episode was produced by Nick Farrago. Story editing by Evan Roberts and Nora Kanidis Boydell. Our sound mixer is John Ross. I'm Alexis Preston. 
And I'm Renee Colvert. And you've been listening to An Animal Saved My Life. Join us next week for another incredible animal story. 